Welcome back. I appreciate your being here. We'll be down a little bit today with holiday weekend, but all of you all get extra credit for coming. And uh, I'll, com I'll do a little table combining if we need to for the discussion. So having said that, Roger has our devotional. Okay. Um, so I have been thinking a lot about this sort of process that we're doing. God's will. Um, not God's will in the larger sense of does, is God determining that Mary Jones would have cancer, but what is God's will individually for me and, and in this time, and how, do I, how am I able to kind of discern that and, and learn more about that? Um, you know, and I guess part of what has brought this to my attention is that steps number th number three in the AA 12 step program involves personal will and step number 12 um, involves God's will and discerning God's will in our lives and this is something that as a family we've been kind of um, working with so to just kind of construct for you a little my thought about it um, C.S. Lewis, in uh, his book called Mere Christianity, references that um, that as humans, one of the things that characterizes us is that we have a in, ingrained within us a law of human nature. Um, we can talk more about that later, but it it is something I do believe, um, and I I also believe I believe that as Christians. Um, we develop and hew that understanding of, of the law of human nature. And the way that we do that is by expanding our scope of the understanding through God's word, the study of God's word, through prayer, through worship, um, and through fellowship um, and just mutual discussion all of which contributes to our understanding of what is God's will, um, what is our understanding of God, and particularly the teachings of Jesus, of course, and the help of teachers like Larry, of course. Um, so all of this um, forms a perspective for me uh, that gives me a construct to kind of view the world and what's happening around me. And then I think that begins to affect um, my understanding of what is God's will for me and what, where am I moving and all of that. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes it's very conscious and sometimes it's just subconscious. Sometimes it's huge stuff. Sometimes it's very little things. And I don't think, you know, personally, and I think maybe folks can relate to this, that we're always aware of it as God's will, but it's the construct that we've developed within ourselves and, and our experiences. So I want to give you just a couple of examples in case I'm being too obtuse here um, of where, where I kind of have seen that personally in my life and just, um, just as simple examples. But um, a few months ago, uh, we were visiting our, our children in Boston, 
and um, we were anxious about uh, our son, who is an alcoholic, and hadn't seen him, had gotten disturbing calls, wanted to see him, um, and maybe some of you have shared that kind of experience. So we made arrangements to meet for lunch. Um, we called him when he didn't show. We called again several times. As essentially, to just boil it down, we didn't see him. Um, and we were distressed about that, and I was, I was distressed about it to the point that I felt I needed to do something about this. Um, I needed to confront that situation. And at the same time, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to, um, but I had this little thing that kept coming up. You need to confront this, um, which I did. Um, the outcome, when he was brighter, was a little difficult, um, but yesterday we were in Pennsylvania to celebrate six months of sobriety. Yeah. So I retrospectively interpret that as God's will for me in the moment. Um, I didn't recognize it then, and maybe that's overreading it, but I don't think so. Um, another example on a larger scale is several years ago, a group of us were working in uh, Nicaragua in the barrios um, working with medical personnel, <clears throat> and we became very disturbed about the rate of cervical cancer in women in Nicaragua, which is the number one killer of women in Nicaragua. <clears throat> and the, in looking at that more carefully as a group, we realized that it's because women were now receiving pap smears, which are just kind of like pap smears. Why not? You know. Um, so we um, researched that more and more, and and there's a lot of sociocultural reasons for that. But we put together a group of women practitioners um, to go into the barrios and do pap smears and HIV testing. Um, we coordinated with some docs in the clinics and so on. <clears throat> and the program was quite successful. Um, a year later on our return, after we taught folks to do pap smears and so on, <clears throat> we returned to one of the clinics. I wasn't with the group, but the, the other, the women practitioners who were actually doing the work were there. And um, a woman came up with her daughter Hugging, looking for the women and hugging them and saying, you saved my life. You saved my life. So this woman was diagnosed with significant um, erosion into cervical cancer, and the pap smear was really her lifesaver. So to me, <laughs> that was God's will that we formulate this and work with it. Um, and... You know, it had a positive outcome. So on a large scale, on a small scale, consciously, subconsciously, I think we construct within ourselves these, this mental um, position in which we begin to say, yes, I understand, you know, that this is what I need to do 
and actually we are the instruments of God's work. And just to relate to that, and hopefully I'm not over time here, but uh, <clears throat> many of you may be familiar with this, but uh, there is a uh, poem written for the um, memorial service of Oscar Romero, the martyr of El Salvador. Um, and I think that this helped me develop my construct of um, of uh, trying to understand God's will and what I'm able to do within that. So this is it, part of it. Um, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. So in trying to discern God's will, I thank you for sharing the study and uh, hope we can all learn more about where God is directing us individually. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. So let us pray. Dear God, for the witness to your will and for those times when we feel um, we are close to it currently or retrospectively, and for our prayers for it in the future, we give you thanks. Amen. Thank you very much. I told you guys you do good devotionals. All you got to do is sign up for it. You do great devotionals. so uh, They're really witnesses, I guess. Um, I think I'm going to, given the, that not that many people are here, I think we'll forego the table introduction today and just pick that up next week when there's more to introduce themselves. Uh, but we are going to do, uh, we get to start Luke today. We have two weeks on each of the Gospels. And so we have two weeks on Luke today, and it gets... Uh, it's a, it's a fun gospel to teach. I mean, they all are, but, but this one particularly, um, kind of because it's so clear and distinct. And frankly, what we're going to do today is talk about the characteristics of Luke, but we're almost totally going to limit ourselves to the, um, to the Christmas stories and comparing the Christmas stories of Luke and Matthew, which is fun because we do all know them. And we have seen all those crash scenes in front of churches and in Macy's, uh, department store windows and they're all just conflated together so it's fun to separate them apart and see what comes from Matthew and what comes from Luke and why so uh, 
and I'll really be following this, and uh, I'm going to make sure that you have plenty of time to, to discuss at the end. So um, the background of the Gospel of Luke is that uh, Luke and Acts were written by the same author, and we know that uh, from their introductions. Um, and, and Luke has a very clear sense of authorship. He's got a clearer sense of authorship than, than um, Matthew or Mark. And um, he dedicates the book to a certain person named Theophilus. And Theophilus in Greek simply means a lover of God. So it's, it's likely, uh, you know, that's sort of a generic name. That's sort of like dear John Doe or something. I mean, dear lover of God. Uh, Acts 1.1 refers to the first book. Um, I'm reading now, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I too have decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent lover of God, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. He is acknowledging uh, that that Gospels are being written, and he is now ready to set something down uh, clearly uh, for for those uh, who are his readers. Um, The combination of Luke and Acts, the two books, combine over a fourth of the New Testament. Um, So Luke is the second... uh, longest author in the New Testament, the longest being Paul, because the letters of Paul take up more space than Luke and Acts. Uh, We've all probably learned in Sunday school, if we attended Sunday school as a child, that Luke was the beloved physician, uh, and that uh, comes from three references in Paul's letter, one in Colossians, one in Philemon, and one in in, uh, 2 Timothy. it's, it's not provable, but it's, but it's certainly um, as, as good a, a thought or explanation as any. And as, I, as we just read, uh, he makes an explicit, in his introduction, he makes an explicit intention uh, and speaks knowingly of other words, other gospels having been written down. So that's, that's sort of an internal way. I know, I know um, a lot of times I'm... In here I say that we or that scholars or that archaeologists or the people that date the, date the papyra, uh, you know, are able to date when gospels were written. I, I also like it when within the text of the gospel you can see evidence of dating. So what Luke is showing evidence of is that there are other written words about Jesus that he's familiar with and now he's He's going a next step with that. Um, he is probably a Gentile, not not Jewish. Um, Greek is his native tongue. Luke is a sophisticated use of Greek. Uh, Mark is not as much, but but Luke is, and uh, he uses and knows Hellenistic literary patterns. Patterns, and there's a couple of places in 1711 that he gets Palestinian geography confused. So we don't think he's native to the region. We think he's he's uh, a Gentile and, and not Jewish. Uh, what's interesting about Luke is that a lot of the material in Luke that is very famous and beloved by Christians across the century 
is found in Luke alone. And the biggest part of that is what we commonly call the Christmas story. Uh, the, the story that is read on Christmas Eve most commonly uh, is, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but, but is, is mainly from Luke. The shepherds and the angels and the manger and Joseph and Mary and all of the music, all of the singing that occurs at the Christmas story is mainly in Luke. It is Matthew that has um, the journey of the wise men and the slaughter of the innocents and the appearance to Joseph. Um, they're, they're distinct, and we're going to look at those differences in a minute. But the most popular and common uh, you know, story of Christmas in those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him at the end. That story is, is Luke um, and Luke alone. In addition, what is less known is during the trial period when Jesus is arrested, um, the whole trial before Caiaphas, before the religious official, is in Luke alone. In in Jesus, I mean in Matthew, and you know the famous trial in Mark is before Pilate. In Luke, he's tried before Pilate, but then he's also taken, and there's a fully developed trial among the Jewish authorities, and and that is in Luke alone. Um, and and that's not as as famous, but but is important. Um, I'm sorry, the trial before Herod, excuse me. It's not the trial before Caiaphas. The trial before Herod is in Luke alone. Um, the other thing that's that's different about Luke is you have these parables that are gripping and famous and are only in Luke. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is only in Luke. The parable of the Prodigal Son is only in Luke. Those are the two, the two most famous um, they're probably the two most famous parables, and, and they're only in the Gospel of Luke, um, the Pharisee and the publican as well. There's a whole section of Luke starting about uh, chapter 19 for, th- for three or four chapters that, that, is, that has almost no material in it from Matthew or Mark that's Luke's alone. We think there's a, there's a Luke, uh, that Luke was using a source that, that only he had access to uh, himself. In addition, as, as we'll see, the, you know, the, the, the stories of Jesus' appearance after the resurrection or the resurrected Jesus' appearance also has quite, a, quite variance in the Gospels. But the most famous one in Luke that, that's a great story is the appearance on the two, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That is also uh, strictly a Lucan story. Um, the date is probably between 80 and 100 after the fall of Jerusalem, but before the letters of Paul. And what's neat about Luke, I think I pointed this out the, the whole, the first time, is his genealogy doesn't come until chapter, where is it? Three or four, yeah, let's see. I need a little bit, bit sh- more acuity to be it's the end of three and the beginning of four yes okay yeah uh, 
starting at, at 3.23. It traces Luke, if you'll look back down at, uh, at verse 38, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. The genealogy in Luke traces, goes all the way back to Adam and to God. If you'll recall, the genealogy in Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. So that fits Matthew's emphasis on Jesus as being the Jewish Messiah who has come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and starting with the redemption of the, of the Jews and then being commissioned to go out uh, and make disciples of all nation, nations. In Luke, you get Luke as a writer and as a theologian has this sense that God is moving through history, starting with creation, all the way back to Adam. And so you have the the period of what we would call the Old Testament, and then you have the period of Christ, and then you have the period of the Spirit, of of the church, the gift of the Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit to the church after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And that is the story of Acts spreading out into the Greco-Roman world. Luke is sometimes called the gospel of the Holy Spirit because you've, it's sort of like this wave of God's presence through history from Adam and Eve and with the Jewish people then with the life of Christ, and then with the Spirit moving out into the into the entire world. And uh, Luke's genealogy fits that. I'm going to open these doors now. Nancy was moving some furniture, but it just gets too stuffy in here. We can have noise or we can have stuffiness. but And sometimes stuffy people are even loud, but not usual. <laughs> so uh, I think we'll be all right here. Uh, but... With Luke, you never get, um, you know, with Matthew, you get, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and I'm reinterpreting the law. You've heard it said, but now I say to you. With Luke, you get this just expansive God, Spirit, and Christ that begins um, with the beginning all the way back to Adam and moves through history and goes into a glorious future. So it's just a big universal uh, movement and gospel. And that is one reason that you have in Luke a a really positive view of Samaritans because Samaritans are Gentiles. They're sort of half. They're not really accepted by Gentiles and not really accepted by Jews. But Luke has a parable about a Samaritan of all people who is good. Uh, And that fits his just concept that Jesus is really for the world, that Christ is really redeeming uh, everybody from the outset, more so than being for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we think, yeah, we're pretty sure that he was. Um, Another major theme in Luke that's really worth looking for is um, the... It's actually this this nomenclature was in the disciple class I taught, but my understanding is that it was coined by uh, Elam Davies in the early 60s, who was minister of Fourth Present in uh, Chicago, and that is that Jesus is for the least, the last, and the lost. That's just a great little mantra that you can put on your bumper sticker, the least, the last, and the lost. And the reason 
we say that is because his parables and his stories are more emphasizing Jesus' outreach to the least, the last, and the lost. So you have Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus and Luke. Uh, you have literally the lost son or the prodigal son is in Luke. Um, Luke has, and I've, I've, I was told this by Fred Craddock. I mean, I heard him say it about 30 years ago, and it's really been meaningful to me. Um, many of us, many people in sort of Presbyterian circles who travel, uh, you talked about Oscar Romero, but, but you have the image that, that we've all heard of the, the huge, wealthy, ornate Catholic cathedrals in Central or South America in just impoverished conditions. And, and there's something about the Presbyterian soul that looks at those and just says that is wrong. You know, that gap is wrong. And I know that, and, and I'll be confessing on this, when I, uh, you know, when I've gone to Israel and you go to the, to the Holy Sepulchre where tri- Christ is born and it's got seven different religious denominations that claim it or fight over it or have kind of divided it up uh, like pie. And, and, it, and the big, the Orthodox tradition is really, I think, officially is the, is the dominant ruler there. It is an enormously ornate thing. And here I've been to, to Israel, you know, now twice and going again this year, and I love the trip. But I always can only spend a few minutes in there because it's just too much for me. And I walk away from there thinking, I am so glad I'm a Protestant, you know, because I just, you know, we're so much simpler. But you have all this ornateness, you know, surrounding the birth of Christ. Um, Luke is the most artistic gospel. It has the most music, the most poetry, the most singing angels. I mean, it's just a beautiful affirmation of art. And it is the gospel in which Jesus is most concerned about the least, the last, and the lost, the poor. And and it it is a subtle message that contradicts everything I've just said the last five minutes that says that the faith is big enough to have in it both beauty and compassion both beauty and care. And, and uh, I, I know that uh, one, of my, one of the most significant things that ever happened to me that I was ever involved in in the ministry was about a 10-year project in my Iowa congregation. If you can imagine the sort of pragmatic, realistic, tight-fisted Midwest uh, we did about a $5 million renovation of a, of a building, but about about a million of it was to restore the interior of a Gothic sanctuary more to what it was like in the 19th centuries. 19th century, it had been modernized in the 50s. And, and people in the Midwest are not, they don't just stand up in line to spend that kind of money on something that is simply for the sake of beauty. But but we ended out being able to do it, and and it was really a, a neat thing. But one of the one of the mantras that sort of came to me during that time is, uh, 
you know, in a city of 100,000 in a mainline church, you don't really know what the future of the congregation is going to be, a downtown church. I mean, there are many churches like that that have more or less died or become very small. But I realized that what we ended up doing was probably one of the most beautiful buildings or interiors in the city and that it was it was worth creating something beautiful in and of itself. And, and this was also a congregation that was downtown that fed a 100 people every Sunday night from the streets that had a clothes closet that was open five days a week and had a food bank that was open five days a week. So on a really small scale, it was sort of this affirm, a Lucan affirmation that you can have beauty and you can have uh, compassion all the same. So I'm really talking out of both sides of my mouth today, but welcome to Larry's world. Uh, but in Luke, uh, as Fred Craddock says, when we read Luke, we sing, we eat, we behold beauty, and we share our bread. That's what we do in the Gospel of Luke. It is, it is that powerful a thing. Uh, and that beautiful thing. So, so let's uh, let's look at the. I, I don't exactly know all of what you have, but uh, I want to I want to talk. We've sort of talked about Luke as as a universal story. Um, the uh, and and just to highlight a few things here. Um, the, there is a centrality. To Jerusalem in Luke, and Jerusalem is a positive place in Luke. In Matthew, you know, Jesus is always in conflict with Jerusalem, and it's the city that disobeyed the prophets and all that. Luke opens in Jerusalem with Zechariah the priest, and the disciples are told to go back to Jerusalem and wait there for their marching orders to go out. It's really the the central and positive positive place in in Luke. Um, Luke is also, as I sort of said earlier, um, very aware of its context in world history. Um, In the days of Herod the king is 1-5. In the sixth month is part of the birth narrative. And then the famous line, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. It's interesting to have your religion or your gospel tied to the morning headlines. You know, it's just like, you know, if you were to say in the year that we were in Iraq, in the year of Watergate, in the year of, you know, the Civil War, in the year of the Emancipation Proclamation, then he's going to tell you the story of Luke. But it's just interesting to, you know, on you know, 9-11, so-and-so, on December 7th, 1941, so-and-so. I mean, those kind of markers uh, are a really cool way of bringing heaven to earth and earth to heaven and saying that it's, it's this, you know, this, this meeting where, where our faith is. Um, there's also a greater role and emphasis on on women and the poor in the in the birth stories in the in the in the infancy narratives of, of Jesus in, in the first two chapters in Luke, it is Elizabeth and Mary who who have the fore, foreground. And certainly Mary is the central recipient and player character in that 
in that. And that's, you know, that's who we remember Christmas by. In Matthew, it's Joseph. And, and Matthew, the Matthew Christmas story doesn't get as much attention in the church. But it's, it's Joseph to whom, who's told what's going to happen and to whom the angel appears. Um, in, in terms of the poor, uh, the most famous characters drawn to the birth of Christ in Matthew are the wise men, the magi, who are astronomer, astronomers. They are from the east. They're Persian. They're mysterious. They're dressed in this royal garb, which is what gives rise to the We Three Kings. But obviously they are the sort of elite, intelligent, wealthy People, the wise men, are drawn to the birth of Christ. In Luke, it's the shepherds. Dirty, smelly, blue-collar, illiterate. The lowest, among the lowest forms of laboring class in, in a nomadic society are the shepherds. They are the migrant workers. They're the people that come from the south and you know, pick corn and soybeans and whatever, you know, apples and whatever whatever the agriculture is in this country and then go back home and live in trailers. And I mean, that's who is attracted to the birth of Christ in Luke. So you have, you know, women playing a central role and you have the poor being attracted. Um, there is a romantic, idyllic quality that pervades the first two chapters of Luke. Where salvation emer- and really the whole thing, where salvation emerges among hum- humble people, where women exult in childbirth, and where shepherds come to worship a baby who is in a manger, which is a feeding trough, and a baby who is born um, when his parents are going back to the father's hometown for a census to be counted, and born in the back of a in the stable out back of an inn, you know, where all the recycle bins are and the pizza, you know, boxes and all that piles up in the back, you know, because that's the only room they can find. And and the and the manger, as best we can tell, is is literally like we see on the scenes. It's a feeding trough. It's where the it's where the cattle fed from. And that's a pretty humble beginning. And the only the only thing that, that I would say when you're reading Luke is have a little place in your heart for the innkeeper because the innkeeper doesn't exist. All it says is there was no room at the inn. So the innkeeper is the most maligned non-character in Scripture. <laughs> He, he doesn't exist. There just wasn't any room at the end. You know, he had shut, he had closed down and gone home. So anyway, uh, so uh, a comparison. It, I think you've probably got this of, of the birth narratives and the two stories. Uh, if do you have the chart that looks? Yeah, you do have this at the top of of the page. Uh, yeah, I'm reading. I just I want to I want to read these slowly so. Again, this is that part of your exercise where you're separating the nativity scene. 
Okay, so you can just, at least when you see them, at least when you go buy your Christmas tree and get hot chocolate from the nativity scene on the church lawn where everybody's out front, you can at least know, ah, that's from Luke and that's from Matthew. And if you say that to who's ever running the nativity scene, it will totally throw them off because they won't know what you're talking about, but you will feel smart. Okay, so in Matthew... Uh, we have the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah going back to Abraham in Matthew. We have the birth of Jesus the Messiah. We have the visit to the wise men. Visit of the wise men. That's only in Matthew. The escape to Egypt. Remember? Only in Matthew. The massacre of the innocents. Only in Matthew. And the return from Egypt only in Matthew. That that is the that's the birth story in Matthew. And if you again, if all you had is Matthew, you would and and the Old Testament. And if you were a slightly astute reader, when you read things like Son of Abraham. Escape to Egypt, massacre of the infants, and return from Egypt. You might be thinking, oh, didn't I read that in the Old Testament? Isn't that what the people of Israel experienced? Okay? That's, that's the drawing it together. Uh, just like if, you know, if, if a story of Jesus had appeared that said he, you know, walked a mile to return a library book or chopped down a cherry tree, you know, you'd say, oh, where have I heard that before? I might associate that with something of my past. You see, that that's how it how it comes to life. But that's Matthew. So now, usher the camels off the stage, you know, get rid of the star and all that, and now let's pull back the curtain and see the nativity scene according to Luke. With Luke, you have... The birth of John the Baptist foretold, parallel. The birth of Jesus foretold, parallel. It goes back and forth. Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth. The babe leaps in Mary's womb. Mary bursts into a song of praise. Then we have the birth of John the Baptist. Then we have Zechariah's prophecy. Then we have the birth of Jesus. It's all parallel. And then we have these things start happening that that are very unique to Luke, although all these are. Um, Jesus is born, put in the manger. The shepherds appear and the angels appear. Jesus is named. He is presented in the temple. He returns to Nazareth and at age 12, we have this one gospel story from the childhood of Jesus. Matthew has no, I mean, in all the other gospels, Jesus either starts as an adult or goes from infant to adult stage. In Luke, we've got this picture of Jesus lost in the temple, teaching the rabbis, his parents desperately searching for him, chewing him out when he is found, and he is silent after that. Even, although he sort of says, well, where did you expect to find me? But in my father's house, they don't like that answer. And he wisely shuts up. 
until he's about 30 when he reappears on the scene. Right. <laughs> he's, he's grounded till he's 30. That's right. Uh, but it, but again, you, uh, you know, you see some themes emerging from, from Luke as well, but they're just different. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with putting these together. I mean, in the 19th century, scholars sort of use this to say, oh, well, you know, you can't reconstruct the life of Jesus or, uh, you know, this is evidence that the Gospels are all fiction because there's so much disagreement. It, it's really not. It's really each author having a significant theological purpose as they are telling the story of Jesus 30 or more years after after that story happened. Uh, so it's really fine to go to Macy's and you see them all together in the same window. But just... Along with Santa. Yeah, that's true. And probably no telling. I haven't been to Macy's. I was actually, you know, when I was in seminary, I actually got to see the Macy's Thanksgiving parade. But that was 1976. It's probably very different now. But, you know. But Christmas Christmas in New York is really cool if you can ever go there. So, So question, reaction, comment so far. Nothing? Okay. Y'all are... I, I was looking at the Magnificat, and I guess I never paid attention to what she actually said, but it's interesting from the perspective of what you're saying. Yes, the, um, reversal of the yeah, poor, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's brought down the powerful, right. scattered the proud, lifted the lowly. Yeah, he's talking about, what that's in Chapter 2, right, the Magnificat? Yeah. Chapter. No, Chapter yeah, one. The Magnificat, this is worth talking about just as, as a nice little aside. Uh, this is Mary's song of praise after she's visited Elizabeth. And it is very similar in theme to Hannah's song in Second Samuel. Hannah is the mother of Samuel. And it, too, is a theme of God is blessing me with this promise of a child. But but look at the nature of the promise. As he says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant, me. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. It is an economic reversal of fortune. And the only people that can hear Handel say that, here handle some Messiah present this or paying a hundred bucks for the ticket and going to the Kennedy Center, you know. I mean, it's really a, it's an economic, uh, you know. And, and Mary is depicted as one of the Anawame, which is, is truly a peasant class in her society. Uh, so it's a, and, and when you couple that with Jesus, I know I'm going a little, I'm not going off the rails, but you know, his, his opening sermon in 416, 
this matches very much because this is is the most famous of his hard-hitting sermons where he, in 416, he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read the lesson for the day. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up and sits down and gives it back to the attendant. The eyes of all the synagogue are fixed upon them. And then he says, while you were sitting here listening to this, all this was being fulfilled and you weren't a part of it. It's really a great opening sermon, you know. <laughs> but it's that theme of liberation and, and Jesus being on the side of the poor. It very much fits Mary's, uh, the Magnificat. Yes, George. Correct. Uh, then putting them in terms that would reconcile in some way with the past, and then maybe 60, 100 years later, perhaps beginning to write for the future. Yes, um, that's great. How to understand the dynamics of this at this distant point in that time. Right. It's, it's a challenge to, to understand it. You know, I mean, I think you're on to something. Um, what, what I would say about that is that most of us are sort of raised with just the assumption that that all the Gospels are saying the same thing and there's one story and it's sort of a, a newspaper reporting type of, of literature, but it's not. It's really, it's really not any different than a sermon. I mean, if you came to Westminster, if we had a preach-in at Westminster and Whitney was going to do 15 minutes and Jacob was going to do 15 minutes and Patrick was going to do 15 minutes and Larry was going to do 15 minutes and it was all on the same event in Jesus' life, you would get four different pictures of that event. And it's only if you're a complete rationalist that you would have to say, ah, nah, 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 one of those has to be right. You know, three of them are wrong, one of them's right. And, and it's not that. It is, it is a living, breathing picture, presentation of, of Jesus as Messiah. They all have that. Uh, it's almost like a picture. Like yes. Right. Right. Somebody else takes a photograph, and you know you have four different, and, and no one's going to go up and say, 
And he said, not in Luke, but in Matthew. I mean, he said it in Luke too, but he really said it in Matthew. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. I mean, his whole persona and teaching is to take what you have heard and inherited. But now, in this new light... Take it this direction. It's just, okay, Kurt, one more, yeah. On a practical note, we have to remember that this time people didn't read necessarily. Right. So they passed things by word of mouth. Right. So telephone game, it's old <laughs> Right. <laughs> they didn't have telephones either. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they, they right. Yeah, they did. probably weren't always all together in a gang. Right. Right. So they were they were probably scattered. So when they wrote, they had picked up different things yeah. and then they wrote down what they, they picked up. I mean when you think about how what a small portion of the population was literate and how hard it was to write, uh I mean it, it is quite it, it would be like I mean to write a gospel would be like me trying to paint the Sistine Chapel. I mean it was just a huge accomplishment to to write these things. Okay, one more, and then we got to take a break. Wayne? Well, you talked about interpretation. I'm sure you're aware of this, but when we were in Ezekiel, you mentioned it briefly, um, that the attributes of God are narrowed down to four. A lion, an ox, a man, and a flying eagle. And you know, this has been applied to those four gods. It has, yeah. yeah. You have the lion of Judah in Matthew. You have the ox. Or in Mark. Uh, Christ says, I have not to serve, uh, be served, but to serve. Yeah. That is the ox. The man is Luke, who yeah. is a who is a doctor. Yeah. He's interested in humanity. And then of course there's John as theological. That's right. the flying eagle. Right. So it's interesting. That's good. It it goes back yeah. It goes back and forth. Yeah. So let's take our break. We've got some kind of chocolate cookies today. No, no, uh, ginger. 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 Oh excuse me. They're called hermits or kermits? Kermits, okay. H, H, okay. We're in Luke. Eat, eat, eat. Okay, let's come on back and uh, do a little more looking at the beginning. Yes. Yeah, it's Judith and Dana. They bring them every week. They bring them. These are these are your. Yeah, these these are the best so far, in my opinion. Yeah, they are wonderful, and they're warm. Like you all, just bring them out of the oven and come over here. So thank you. You just got applauded. But you obliged, right? Okay. So what I want to look at now, if it's if it's on your uh, sheet, is is called comments on the Christmas story. You've got that good. And I thought what I would do, since we've talked a lot about differences, is to is to go back and I just want to I want to focus a minute on what is similar. 
to between the Matthew and Lucan stories. And just remember that Mark does not have the Christmas story. Mark starts with Jesus as an adult. And John, you will see, is so spiritual. He starts in the cosmos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when we're talking about the Christmas story, we're only talking about Matthew and Luke. And as uh, my New Testament professor, Raymond Brown, who's really written the, still the definitive commentary on this, uh, the birth narrative, the infancy narratives, uh, it's amazing that that only four chapters of the entire Bible constitute the birth stories. And you, you think of how much of Christianity, of its art and its effort and its you know, worship attendance and everything else goes in or grows out of those four chapters. You know, it's amazing. Uh, so, I mean, you think of what the Western world's economy would be if we didn't have those four chapters. I mean, you know, it's it's just crazy what their their impact. So, I think by the time the Gospels were written, that's true. I, I think especially. You know, especially Luke, I am writing this for you, O lover of God, Theophilus, to set the record straight, to bring what's common among all these other writings in there. I think that's that's a very definite future orientation. Paul's letters are not written that way, as we'll see when we get there. Paul was just writing mail to churches he'd founded. Do you think that the people that wrote, let's just say the gospel, do you think they thought of themselves as um, as historians or as um, literary writers? I think they thought of themselves. I, I would cut. I would split the difference and say a little bit of both, but but more theological writers than literary writers. So, do you think that the but but they definitely had a belief in. You know, in, in I don't want to say reconstructing. To some extent, reconstructing history and presenting it to the to their readers. But were they intentional about what they yes. elaborated on? Yes. And what they left out. Yes, they were intentional about what they elaborated on, included and and left out. Yes. Yeah. Or it was because they were afraid at that time. I mean, if well, for sixty to hundred years, that if they didn't capture it. It would, it would be lost. It would be lost forever. There's a little bit of that in Luke, uh, you know, because the generations are passing on. Yes, all of that, that's true. So, so in the similarities, just think think about because we kind of talked about the differences here for a while, and I want to come back to the center and remind us of how much they actually have in common. Um, in both Gospels, the angel of the Lord announces both the forthcoming conception and the birth of the Messiah. The angel is called Gabriel in Luke. It's not named in Matthew. But but they both, you know, an angel announces, which is an angel. The word angel simply is evangelon, which is messenger. It's, it's literally just a messenger from God. 
announces the conception and the birth, the upcoming birth. Um, and both say that the child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, by God's action rather than uh, through or by a human father. And we'll talk about the, the doctrine of the virgin birth in, in, a, in a little bit, but I think it is, I think it's really the witness of these gospels that this, that the conception and birth of this child is the result of God's action. It's not, uh, this is not a normal, you know, human birth or even a normal human, uh, active. It's, it's truly the gift of God. And one of the things I like about, about the Luke, um, one of the reasons that, that I affirm in, in a different level than some people do the virgin birth is, uh, Let me see this. Uh, I wish I could recall these better. Um, It's in one. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me come back to this. I don't. I don't want to spend the time to get lost right now. Uh, there, there is a. I'll just say it and, and not try to find the verse. But there is a, um, in, in the Genesis story of creation, where it says, um, the spirit of God, brooded or hovered over the waters at creation. There is a word play that that is also what Luke is describing relative to Mary's womb. Verse 35. 135. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Thank you. It's the word overshadow. overshadow. Yeah, that is... I've been told there's a linguistic connection between the idea that the Spirit is overshadowing Mary, um, even the womb of Mary, which is a watery thing. And it's a play on, in the Genesis story, at creation, the Spirit of God is hovering or overshadowing the waters from which creation is made. And I think that has always linked it to me to get it out of well, did Mary have sex or not? You know, that sort of uh, crass question that, or that juvenile question that we can't seem to get out of our mind, but that this is a creative act on the part of God into the womb and body of Mary as a gift on the part of the Spirit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She may have been 11 or 12. Which was not not uncommon in that day. Probably not 11 or 12, but close. 13, yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, the, the whole purpose, the witness of this passage is that this birth is the creation of God. 
And and that's that's the meaning of the virgin birth doctrine, not did you have sex or not. Uh, anyway, um, and and the this third bullet of the similarities in both gospels, Mary is engaged to Joseph. You you the old word is betrothed, but the the stage of marriage for them was was engagement, which is as legally binding as marriage, but they have not yet started living together because basically the I think the woman would go and live in the in the in the man's house who lived with his parents. So not unlike today, if you live in Washington D.C. <laughs> so uh, another similarity is that in both Gospels, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the Judean city of King David. Um, in Matthew, his parents seem to live in Bethlehem. In Luke, they have to travel there from their home in Nazareth which is way up in Galilee. And that's where we get that Jesus, you know, it's called Jesus of Nazareth. But but he's was both he was born in Bethlehem. And then another set of similarities uh, in both Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the Israelite hope and prophecy, uh, designated as a ruler or Christ, uh, the one anointed as Israel's king. When, if you'll rec- those of you who took Old Testament, if you'll recall, we said that that sort of in a, a you know about the year oh five hundred maybe maybe a little bit earlier than that, as God continues to have this relationship with the people of Israel that in many ways is still not working uh, in terms of Israel's faithfulness, it is almost as if God says. Uh, you know, I am going to, I'm going to go there myself and take care of this. I'm going to, to visit my people and visit the world. And, and you have in later Jewish writing, the form of hope that develops in the Jews is the hope for a Messiah. And, and that is a, that's a relatively late, about the last third of the Old Testament that that develops. And so, you have this Jewish hope for a Messiah. Jesus, cl- Jesus comes and more or less claims that for himself, but, but that claim is made about him. And so the dispute comes not, is God going to send a Messiah, but is this the Messiah? That's really the question that, that the New Testament deals with. But both Matthew and Luke believe he's the Messiah, and that's, that's one of their main reasons for writing. So those are those are primarily agreements. In uh, also then then the last one is that in both these gospels the infant Jesus is worshipped. He is presented as being the Messiah from day one. Um, in the 19th century and early 20th century, and you'll see this at well, I mean in earlier times too. There is the question of, well, when did Jesus realize he was the Messiah, or is it possible that Jesus was sort of grew into being the Messiah or was adopted as the Messiah, you know, later in, later in life? These gospel writers are depicting that he is Messiah from day one, and he is worshipped by the shepherds in Luke and by the wise men in Matthew. And, and the whole baptism, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him, you know, the the gospel writers are clearly saying, nope, he's, he was the Messiah from, from day one. Um, so just 
Um, a little bit, this very last thing about Jesus' birth in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, this is a little bit related to the virgin birth, but not necessarily. Um, the interesting thing that these two chapters, of which so much of Christianity has grown out of, are not, um, they don't have much of an afterlife in the Gospels themselves. Um, his birth is only mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament in Galatians 4.4 by Paul and then by the writer John, by the Gospel writer John in 1837. Um, again, in contrast, what made Jesus newsworthy was the resurrection. And, and again, given that Paul writes, is, is the most prolific, Paul consumes the most pages of the New Testament, Paul's message over and over is a focus on the resurrection. Paul himself never mentions the virgin birth. There was never, you know, oh, remember what the angel said or remember what the wise men, there's just no reference back to it. Uh, and... There, and within Matthew and Luke, there is no illusion or reference made back to the birth stories. And that's one of the reason, well, in John, John emphasizes Jesus' sonship, S-O-N-S-H-I-P, but Jesus is nevertheless called the son of Joseph as well as the son of God. Uh, so again, there's not a reference back to, you know, the virgin birth or to, or to Mary's role in this. Um, it's also true that, that some of, none of the characters really carry forward. Joseph is mentioned in Matthew, Luke, and John, but not in Mark. There, there's really no place other than when Jesus is lost in the temple in, in Luke that Joseph appears in the Gospels. And there's, there's many thoughts that, that, uh, you know, that he had died, that he was probably older than Mary and, you know, that he had died. He just doesn't appear later in the Gospels. Mary does appear as kind of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, was at the cross. I mean, she sort of stuck with him all the way through, but Joseph doesn't. And again, the wise men at the end of that story return home by another way. They don't come riding in on their camels at the resurrection. We don't see them again. And the, the shepherds are, it's not that there aren't shepherds in, later in the Gospels, but they don't appear as, as characters either. Uh, you may. Right. And then even though they're the parents are really upset, you know, and he, you know, the, like he is seeing something. I mean, it seems like she is kind of trying to understand him. Right. Level, you know, and like even with when the wise men come, you know, like what's this about, you know? But she 
thinks about it. She doesn't just yeah. herself. Yeah, the phrase in Luke is she ponders these things and keeps them all in her heart. I mean, and every step of his, you know, growing up, you know, he, she's always, it's always through the scriptures that she is really trying to understand what's going on with him, you know. She, ha- she has something about her as a mother, you know, that this is not, and she has a bunch of other kids, you know, because she has brothers and yeah. sisters and all of that. And there's something about him, even from the beginning, there was something, you know, and it, I guess when he was crucified and, and after all that, well, his whole family then, you know, when he, the, he, he resurrected, his family started to get it. Yeah. You know, but you know, was but if she kind of seemed like she was trying to figure it out, you know, and it wasn't all revealed to her. But Correct. But she was. She's a character in the Gospels going forward, a presence. Yeah. And and if you go into John, you've got the wedding feast at Cana, where she's sort of. You know, no, it's not my hour yet. And then he gives in and goes ahead and changes the water to wine. Right. And, uh, yeah, and then you've got, you know, the from the cross, he gives the beloved disciple to Mary. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I mean, that's a beautiful scene. There's there's a definite, and, and then there's the, the scene you refer to where his brothers and his mother it looks like his brothers have finally convinced his mother that, that he really is insane and needs to be stopped, and he just rejects them. Who are my mother and brothers? No, the people that do my will. So there's that's not all from Matthew and Luke, but you're right, Mary. And, and I do think there is a a sensitivity to who he is on her part that is not fully figured out. But can you blame her? Right. Right. She's not, she's kind of like stuck. All of us who have gifted children know that, you know. <laughs> so, right. Nine gifted children, yeah. In the Word, and as John opens up with the Word, but there's, that they knew him not. I mean, and, and Jesus yes. refers to, you know, the prophets in their own land, and then somebody's saying, oh, isn't this just Joseph's son? Right. I mean, you get, you get a concept of somebody. And then it's very hard to pull back from that concept. Right. And That's right. And, you know, we always, one of the simple things we used to think, I think, is, gee, if Jesus would just be here and give us 15 minutes, we could ask him questions <laughs> and have everything solved. There is no evidence that that helped one bit, <laughs> the disciples. That is an illusion on our part. You know, it's an absolute illusion. I think that, that was kind of where I, what I thought when you said that, is that Mary is the only person you see who ponders it in her heart. Yeah. Everybody else around you just either... Jumps to conclusions, right? Especially Peter. He heals them of something, and he says... Okay, be cool about that and don't go tell everybody. Yeah. And then, or the disciples who are with him and see everything and experience everything firsthand don't get it, don't stop and think about it, don't stop and consider it. They take the stupid approach most of the time. And Mary is there for all of it too, but she's the one that we see sits and ponders. Yeah, yeah. And stic
angel. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. You and Wayne are on the same. You would think, I know. But not everybody that gets a visit from the angel in the Bible necessarily gets it, you know, or, or goes forward with it, you know. So, anyway. Uh, I, the, the last thing I want to say, and I, I haven't shared this for a while with classes, but, it, but it's, an, it's kind of an interesting theory to me. Um, it, most people that, that study these, these two emphasis narratives think that they were, that, that in the gospel writers' crafting of their books, that they pretty much wrote the Gospels and then saw the infancy narratives as sort of a prologue where they introduced Jesus and introduced the themes of his life. And so that in terms of the development of the literature, the stories that were passed down and the parables and the teachings, you know, were probably circulating for 20 or 30 years. And they think that the story of Jesus' birth and origins came later more and, and if you just just came later and if you think about it the, the same dynamic is likely apparent in the Old Testament where the formative event for the people of Israel was their consciousness of the Exodus. <coughs> And, and if you look in Deuteronomy, there are places where they confessed their faith and it was God delivered us from slavery. And then it's later that they have an expanding notion of God that leads them to, oh, this God created us. You know, this is not just our tribal God who delivered us from slavery, but this is actually the God who created us. And oh, by the way, this God created everybody including those people who enslaved us. It's kind of a neat expansion. And if you think about, if, since Paul's are the earliest, since the writings of Paul are the earliest, what gripped Paul was the resurrection. He never made a reference to, to Jesus' birth, just a slight reference and no, nothing to the virgin birth. But it would have been the later reflection on Jesus' life, like, oh, this one is raised from the dead. Oh, well, what did he teach when he was here? Oh, well, what did he do when he was here? Oh, well, where did he come from? So it, it's the question about somebody's origins develops. It's the last thing we ask about them. I mean, we, you know, nobody. Why was what? Why was he 30? I guess that's the age he was when he finally left home. I mean, that's kind of agreed on, yeah. So, so you're saying that that part of it is not made up? Well, that, that's agreed upon by the other Gospels, so it's likely. So, and it sort of matches when his, his death date was. So, I mean, it's more evidence that that's, that that's true. But what the point I'm trying to make is that um, nobody is interested in the origins of a non-famous person. Okay, but it's when you become famous because you do something that then people want to know who your kindergarten teacher was, and you know who you you were next to in the in the nursery wherever you were born. Mary. Even like most obituaries, you read the obituary, you read what they've accomplished. Right. 
where they were born. Yes. And, you know, you got to be famous to be able to afford an obituary now. <laughs> you don't even get an obituary, you know. So anyway, um, I, I also think, and I know you're a pediatrician, but so, so you can verify or tell me I'm way off on this theory. But my sense, and I'm only making this up, my sense of human development is that a child is first aware of the parent because of what the parent provides. And, and I'm assuming that's literally breast from the milk. And then as the child grows and develops, the child begins to ask questions of his or her origins or, well, well who's this woman that's providing, <laughs> you know, origins of where they come from? And it, it's just kind of a... Or their dad. Or their dad, yeah. It's kind of a neat thing to think that we... Our faith begins with what God does for us. And it matures into saying, who is this God and what may maybe has this God done for others as well? He released my tribe from slavery. Hmm. Maybe he created us. Oh, maybe he created everybody. He was raised from the dead. Hmm. Maybe he taught. Hmm. Maybe he was born in this way. That's just my little theory of reading the Gospels backwards. Okay, so. Well, well, that's good. Yes. Heads up. Heads up. Heads up. Heads up. Heads up. But it's a lot more fun to make things up than just to repeat what others have said. Okay, so. Uh, all right. So now you've got plenty of time to discuss, and we're going to break the. The uh, lonely couple up here. Up, so Mary, Marilyn, you want to go over here, and Wayne, why, why don't, why don't you go there, and y'all want to go there too, so we can have a, a table of six. Yeah, if the handies would go there, and Wayne go there, or Wayne, you come up here. This will balance it out better. Yeah, I know it's just for tonight. So Marilyn's going to come over. Mary Ann's going to come over here. The handies will go there. And Wayne, you can come here. And you guys can keep your threesome in the corner. All right. So. Yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. So I'll let you get settled. Then I'll, I'll read the questions, and you all have got plenty of time to answer them all with 1,500-word essays. So I do, I do think this is, this is an important entree into it. What is the most tender and beautiful aspect of either Matthew or Luke's Christmas story that touches you? And are there aspects of either story that are actually a barrier to faith for you? Is there anything you've learned this week or today which makes the story deeper, richer, or more profound? And how might this impact your your experience of Christmas this year? So have at it. And you'll go right till 6 o'clock. And-